Hello, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, and I'd like to welcome you to the Infectious Disease Society of America's podcast series. Today, we will hear about hepatitis C testing from Dr. Dave Thomas, recorded during ID Week 2012. Be informal, it's a small group, and uh, if you have burning questions, don't wait till the end. So, um, once again, I'm going to talk about testing for hepatitis C infection. And I have um, four main points. First of all, I'm going to talk about why test, justification for testing hepatitis C, how to test the pretreatment evaluation, and monitoring for treatment. I may transition through a couple of these sections quicker than otherwise uh, because we were expecting more new treaters that are, or, or uh, hep C naive individuals in the audience uh, originally. Uh, and I think maybe some of you already know some of these answers. First of all, why, why do you test? Well, well, you test for hepatitis C because it, it meets every criteria for any uh, condition uh, for testing. We have a, a reliable and expensive test to detect the infection, uh, and awareness of the infection can make a difference. It can make a difference with regard to alcohol intake. It can make a difference with regard to secondary transmission, and, of course, the uh, vaccination issues for hepatitis A and hepatitis B. Uh, and there's evidence that persons who have hepatitis C and don't know it are, um, have very low, uh, uh, would change their alcohol intake, would get vaccinated, and uh, might be able to change their practices to reduce secondary spread. And then finally, we, we test because finding infection matters. Uh, and you can treat, you can cure, and curing uh, improves mortality. So those are the reasons for testing for hepatitis C. It, it meets every criteria that's been set for a condition that you should screen for. All right. Uh, these are the, these are just one, this is one study uh, of many that, that demonstrate that what I view to be the, the critical point here, which is that if you take a group of individuals and cure some and don't cure the others, there will be higher mortality in the ones that aren't cured and likewise the ones that aren't treated. Uh, so treatment can save lives, and that's why we do spouse testing. Now, uh, existing testing recommendations have not really worked very well. Uh, th this graph is just meant to underscore that point, and it, it celebrates the victories that we've had in achieving sustained virologic responses with individuals whom we treat. You're all aware of these kinds of data where now we're curing 70 percent, 60 to 70 percent of all those that we treat. And, and so then if you take these successes and multiply the percent of each individual cured by the percent of individuals who know they have it and actually have received treatment, the successes are essentially non-existent. And so uh, the, the, the second reason to, to, uh, to test is because we, we need to find more infected individuals so they can benefit from this care. All right, so now how do we test? Uh, obviously, um, the, there's these uh, screening guidelines that you may or may not have bothered to read that have been around since 1998. We, we ask for all these risk factors and, uh, and, and see if somebody has one of them, and then if they do, you do a hepatitis C antibody test. But you start out with risk-based screening, and that's been the practice for about 12 years. 
uh, but it doesn't work. And that's why more than half of the individuals in this country and fewer than 10% uh, worldwide know they even have hepatitis C. There's a lot of reasons why it doesn't work, but if, if, since most of you are, on, are in practice, uh, you'll know that uh, it doesn't work because uh, uh, it's, it's very difficult to implement in a practice setting. These are just some data that were recently published in CID, taking a large group of, uh, of individuals in multiple uh, uh, large managed care uh, situations, and you can just sort of focus on this column without the racial breakdown. Ever tested for hepatitis C, only 12.7% uh, ever tested positive, 5%. So uh, fewer than 20% uh, uh, of the individuals ever tested. They, they go, the, the, there's a series of papers, and they, they then go on to show not only the detection of infection, but then some of the downstream uh, events with regard to the benefits of detecting these infections and the expanded uh, testing that would occur with more widespread uh, hepatitis C uh, screening. So why is it that, uh, that we don't do this more often? I, I actually love this paper uh, that one of, the, one of my primary care colleagues turned me on to. And this is one of these ones where somebody sat down and went through all the things that, the, that you're supposed to do in primary care, like, you know, seatbelt counseling and, and, you know, testing for counseling about all, all these kind of different things, including hepatitis C risk-based counseling, and I had that in there. And, and, then, and they divided by the number of, of hours uh, and, and came up with, it would, you would actually spend 7.4 hours per working day uh, just to implement uh, the, um, the, 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 the existing uh, uh, recommendations for what you're supposed to do in primary care. And, and all this while someone comes in with, with the flu or something and, and doesn't want to talk about any of this other stuff that, that you're supposed to do in primary care. So obviously it's impossible to uh, do all that everyone says and we need some different mechanism. And I think this, this audience doesn't need to, to uh, uh, hear that from me. And so uh, recently the CDC said, okay, well we need to do something different. Uh, and we need to do something different now because treatments are getting better and it's, it's inexcusable that there's so many people that are uh, infected that don't know it. And so they came up with this baby boomer recommendation that you've, you've certainly heard about where everyone born between 1945 and 1965 is supposed to get a hepatitis C test, at least one. And that, that would sort of take some of the risk-based stuff out of it and just, just do a test on everyone. Here's the argument for, for it. And really it comes from essentially from these... Uh, serial uh, studies of large groups of individuals in the United States, uh, collections of households that are meant to be representative of the general population. And, and the first time they go and, and meet all these people and draw blood from them and uh, test the blood for hepatitis C. The first time that hepatitis C uh, was tested was in the 1990 edition of the NHANES studies. And this was the one where they said 1.6% of the general population has hepatitis C. It's about 4 million people. Uh, and it peaks, it peaks in, in persons around 40 years of age, 38 to 40 years of age. Now, that, that's all old news. In fact, they, they've, they've already repeated the study, and they repeated the study 10 years later. And they, these are new households. Uh, and yet, even though they, they went to new households, they found the exact same thing. Only now, uh, 10 years later, the people with hepatitis C are 10 years older. And... We're not going to go into all this, but I think many of you know that the disease risk starts to get uh, 
about a lot higher in, in when people move into the 50s, 60s, 70s. And so uh, that sort of convergence of an, an aging population with a lot of hepatitis C. And then if you flip this axis and, and just flip it upside down and, and make it now date of birth, these, these two figures superimpose on one another. And you can see that uh, these individuals born between 45 and 65 uh, have a five-fold increased risk of hepatitis C uh, and comprise approx approximately 77% or three-quarters of all the hepatitis C-infected persons in the U.S. And so if, if, if more than half, if let's say 60% don't know they have it, Elliot already said that you might come up with another 800,000 positive hepatitis C cases that otherwise would not have been found by risk-based testing and save 120,000 deaths by yesterday's treatments, not tomorrow's. And so that's an underestimate, and, and these are the data that really uh, support the recommendation to do a test for everyone. All right, now, what's why you test and, and how uh, uh, the simple uh, testing uh, recommendations have to do with, uh, for acute infection, you look for the RNA, for chronic typical screening, you look for the antibody test. It, it's really that simple. And it's based on the fact that the RNA appears uh, an average of uh, 40 days uh, before the antibody. And so there is a seronegative window period, just like with every infectious disease. Uh, and the, the RNA test is the preferred method for testing acute for acute hepatitis. Uh, whereas with chronic hepatitis, we, we look for the antibody. And the screening algorithms uh, can get really gnarly and complicated, but for all intents and purposes, uh, it's an EIA. If it's positive, uh, almost everyone in, in, in practice goes with a, with a quantitative RNA test because uh, you need to do that for treatment anyway. Uh, and then those that are positive for both, they get pretreatment uh, workup. And those uh, that are negative, if you're really fretting about whether or not they truly had hepatitis C versus a false positive antibody test, you can go on and do a REBA, but of course they don't have any more REBA kits in the United States, so you can't really do that right now, even though theoretically it makes for a nice slide. Those that are uh, positive on REBA have resolved the prior infection, negative, uh, it was a false positive. Interestingly, about 40%, if you look at a blood donor situation, so the lowest risk, about 40% of the EIAs are false positive. So even though it's a very reliable test, it's very sensitive, but there are still false positives if you move into a low prevalence situation. You should know that also the FDA's approve a point of care test, and you may already know that. And um, I don't know, how many of you use it in your practices, the point of care? One, can you bill for it? The, the HIV center uh, is actually I see. You're not using your. I, I mean, I'd be interesting in the in the discussion to, to see. I, I'm curious if if you if you all of a sudden have a, a busy internal medicine practice and you can everybody 45 to 65 needs to be tested. Can, can you just inventory these kits and and do the testing on site? I, I don't know. That would certainly be practical. Um, uh, and I, of course, there's going to be a lot of issues with licensing and that sort of thing. I understand. Um, all right, so uh, why to test, how to test, uh, and now the pre-treatment uh, evaluation. Well, you know, th this is the standard menu. Of course, you have to make sure that the person's infected, that they uh, have chronic infection. You need a genotype to manage hepatitis C today. 
you, you need some proxy of liver disease stage. Uh, Elliot got into the whole biopsy controversy. My personal opinion um, is that you need some measurement of disease stage because you have to know if a patient's cirrhotic, first of all, because you need to do a pass cellular carcinoma screen. And secondly, because even today, our RGT implementations differ according to whether there's cirrhosis. We don't do RGT in persons with cirrhosis. So we need to know, and we, we need to uh, do, uh, make sure that someone's child's A and do some more intensive testing before delivering care if they're, they're cirrhotic. So we need to know if there's cirrhosis. Do we really need to know if someone's F2 versus F1? I don't think so. I have actually not seen any compelling reason to know that right now. Uh, and, I, and, I, uh, and I don't think that the limitations, when I start to consider the limitations of the non-invasive test as compared to the biopsy and, and sort of the pros and cons, I think I've got a pro and con slide now, I took it out, um, then I just don't personally feel like I need liver biopsies very often anymore. because. The treatment successes are high enough and are certainly headed north to where, just like with the decisions with genotype 2 and 3 hepatitis C that we made years ago, where we didn't need the biopsy for treatment determinations about treatment, I think we're there with genotype 1. And it's mostly a matter of getting a, a sort of a proxy for whether they're cirrhotic or not. And, 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 and yes, maybe a bit about the urgency. Can you wait a year and a half? interferon sparing, um, that, those kind of things. And I think you can do that with the FibroSure test. I think you theoretically could do it with the FibroScan, but do you have a FibroScan? Uh, you, you, if you do, you're one of uh, a few centers that has it uh, for research, and you're not supposed to use it for patient care. Um, but it could be used for that, actually, and it's a good test for that. Um, it's just not, we're not supposed to do that right now. Does everyone know what a, so a fiber scan is an ultrasound-like machine that uh, assesses liver fibrosis as a, liver, liver stiffness as a proxy for liver fibrosis and provides actually very reliable estimates of cirrhosis. Uh, it's not so good at F2, F3 kind of things, but it, it's, it's good at picking out cirrhotics uh, and, uh, and actually could function very well for our current and future needs. So we, we need these, uh, we need, uh, th there's others, um, you know, the practices differ with regard to the vigor with which they do alpha antiwine antitrypsin, copper, autoimmune screening, vitamin D, iron, uh, certainly you need thyroid testing if you're going to use interferon. Some uh, use IL-28B, some do not, I'll have a couple slides on that in a second. And then, of course, you need uh, your sort of standard liver staging that Dom will uh, teach us more about later. Now, it's not part of the pretreatment evaluation, so I'm taking a bit of liberty with my assignment, but I also wanted to just get to this point of the HCV RNA testing that we do, because this turns out to matter. I, I have to say I was surprised by this, but it turns out to matter what HCV tests that you do. And both pretreatment and on treatment, you need to do, use an RNA test that's quite sensitive. Uh, and they can di differentiate between uh, hepatitis C levels that are not detectable uh, and levels that are not quantifiable because uh, it turns out that uh, with both medicines, Tilapavir and Bosepavir, uh, and probably Mark will get into this in a bit, the likelihood of relapse is unacceptably high in those who 
RGT response is to be still detectable even if they're not quantifiable. And so you have to get undetectable and you need to have a sensitive test for that. Uh, hopefully that's, I know LabCorp and Quest both have uh, tests that you can use for that purpose. But um, watch out for the detectable but not quantifiable on that lab slip at the four-week uh, point. And, and start in, as part of your pretreatment evaluation with um, a, a test that can fulfill that purpose. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not going to get into uh, the details of the, um, uh, the frequency with which this occurs in the relapse, but it's because I actually can't see the details from this angle. So I, I mentioned a bit about the staging as I was going through my intro slide. Uh, and once again, the liver biopsy gives us this information on, on the degree of fibrosis and whether there's organization of the fibrosis into nodules with cirrhosis or bridging. Uh, we used to have guidelines that said you treated for sure this stuff. Uh, guidelines differed a little bit uh, about this. And most said, no, if there's just some portal expansion, you can wait. I think that, um, that these kind of different, subtle differentiations are ending and we're more or less uh, ending up at you know, trying to find these guys because they have liver cancer risks and, uh, and, and, and treating uh, ev uh, most patients um, uh, when, uh, when we have safe uh, medications that we think will be effective in them. I've been through this. Everybody knows the, the pros and cons of biopsy. I, I tend to favor the non-invasive tests personally. Now, the, the IL-28 issue, uh, as you probably know, there's this cluster of uh, single poly uh, nucleotide polymorphisms around the gene for, for IL-28 or lambda interferon 3 that can differentiate people who are going to respond to interferon and people that they can't. And, and actually Mark's ideal study was the first where, where that was discovered uh, by David Goldstein, um, uh, John McCutcheon and others. And so also in, when they look back to the uh, PI base, the Salapavir and Bosepavir studies, they've shown that individuals with the favorable uh, alleles here, the CC allele, uh, are more likely to respond to uh, I can't see my slides from this angle. I think this is the Talapavir, yeah, the Talapavir study uh, than uh, individuals uh, who have um, one of the T alleles. So you can see that uh, for a particular regimen, the individuals with a CC are more likely to respond than a, than a heterozygote T or uh, a homozygote T. Uh, and that's true for the three regimens, and it's certainly true for the old standard of care. Peg and Riba. So, more likely to respond. Now, some will say, yeah, but does that really make any difference? I, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say, oh, I'm not going to treat you today because you only have a 71% chance instead of a 90% chance. That some people think that's irrelevant. Others say, I want to know everything and I want to tell my patient uh, what they need to know. The other bit of information is, is that it, um, I'm sorry, I dropped the slide. Uh, for time is oh, no I'm sorry I took it out the other bit of information is that the likelihood of abbreviating therapy is of course much higher in those with a favorable genotype so what does IL-28 
give you. It gives you information on the likelihood of responding and the likelihood of uh, being able to get RGT. Some people think that's enough to order the, the three or $400 test. Some people don't. That's, those are the issues uh, for today. Looking to the future, it's not clear whether that test will matter at all with some of the more potent uh, interferon sparing regimens. Uh, there are some uh, early abstracts that suggest that in certain situations it might matter, such as in treatment of 1A with some uh, oral agents, but then there's others that suggest it. No, frankly, it really won't matter that with powerful enough uh, regimens, uh, you'll get high response rates without regard to the IL-28 status. So that's, that's the deal with the IL-28 test. So my, my challenge was to talk to you uh, about testing. I've said why we test. Uh, uh, we test because uh, it makes a difference and it can help people live longer. We test, uh, how do we test? We test using the antibody uh, and the uh, RNA. Uh, we do it uh, hopefully more uniformly in, uh, in primary care practices and not uh, necessarily waiting for people to disclose risk. The pretreatment evaluation, uh, of course, involves uh, some uh, assessment of hepatitis C RNA level using a sensitive test, hepatitis C genotype, uh, and uh, some measurement of liver disease stage. Uh, I've made a case for the acceptability of uh, non-invasive measures. Uh, and then um, uh, I've talked about how to monitor treatment uh, very briefly uh, using a sensitive RNA test. So. Thanks a lot for your attention. Once again, we have a, another, um, uh, we have a Q&A uh, at the end, but I'm happy to use my last five minutes to, to answer any burning questions now. In the back. For uh, those of us who are more naive, um, can you give us a little more specifics on when you maybe think that it Yeah, good question. So the question was, what, when would you ever do a biopsy? Uh, and I think people differ. One thing is you got to realize that biopsies, if, if Don does a biopsy, it's like comparing, you know, uh, Tiger Woods golf shot to my golf shots. They're completely different things. They're not comparable. So if Don does a biopsy and does a three centimeter or greater biopsy with a 14 gauge needle, he actually learns something and, and gets a pretty good estimate of disease stage. If I order one and a radiologist does it with an 18 gauge, I, I, I mean, I, I really have 60% sensitivity to detect significant fibrosis. So I, I actually very rarely do them. Um, but I feel like one of those debaters last night because I didn't really answer your question. I just said something else I wanted to say. Uh, let, me get, let, me get, let me get back to your question. Uh, what did you say your name was again? No. So, uh, so uh, it's, um, when do I do them? <laughs> yeah. So it, I, I think that uh, I'm on the side that sort of doesn't do them very often. Mark, uh, who, who's a smarter practitioner than I, does them a bit more than me, but not as much as some others. Um, I, I would say that I do them when my non-invasive testing is inconclusive. So like any other medical test, I do it when it would change something that I would do. So in, there have been a few instances where you know, it was really a tough decision about the safety of waiting. And we were pretty sure we wanted to wait on somebody, but I was getting bounce on my fibrosures. They're up and down, uh, and I'm not supposed to be using my fiber scan for this purpose. 
and, and some of that, and, and, and we've gotten a liver biopsy to feel confident that we could wait a couple years for interferon sparing. And that's personally been my practice. Um, and we'll let some of the others share during the Q&A. Is there a standard liver biopsy No, there's not, unfortunately. And that's one of the issues. Even in some of the best studies, the average biopsies are too small. In the HALT-C study, the NIH-funded study with all the best hepatologists in it, and they all did the best job they could and everything, the average size of the biopsy was 18 millimeters. Too small. Too small. And yet that's average. And so really big ones give you some really you know, important information, but I don't think you can get that very often. And I, and I find that I do know what I get when I get a FibroSure test back. Now, if I get a low result, I'm, I'm pretty sure someone does have cirrhosis, coupled with the APRI, you know, coupled with platelet counts and other things like that. So, any, uh, I think maybe I have 33 seconds. One more. I just noticed that on your slide you had for dialysis patients. Are you supposed to get an RNA on your dialysis patients? Is that what I was talking about? Yeah, I'm sorry to not have gone into that more. Uh, there are certain situations where B cells don't work very well and antibodies aren't produced reliably. One of them uh, is dialysis. Another is advanced HIV with very low CD4 counts. So in dialysis, yes. In other situations, we say when there's an unexpected elevation in liver enzymes or an unexpected evidence of um, suspicion for hepatitis C, then don't rely only on the antibody, but in, in all other uh, instances, do the RNA test. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you for listening to another excellent presentation brought to you by the Infectious Disease Society of America. This is Dr. Neil Skolnick. Thank you for listening.